The classic story always includes the good guy and the bad guy. And sometimes the good guy is very obvious to tell. The bad guy is equally obvious to pick out. But sometimes it makes you wonder, who is the bad guy? Who is the good guy? I saw a meme this week on my social media where a young man was telling another young man about identifying the bad guy. And he brought up the concept of Peter Pan. And he said, you know what? What if Captain Hook isn't really the bad guy? And the the other guy's like, what are you talking about? What, What do you mean? And he's like, Captain Hook is only after Peter Pan to keep Peter Pan from trying to kidnap other children. He's trying to stop Peter Pan. So who is the bad guy? This is the Living Brightly podcast with Elaine Cross, and that made me stop and think, who is the bad guy? It's the classic story of forever. There's always someone doing good and someone doing bad. And sometimes it's really hard to see which is which. What side of the coin is this person? Human dynamics tell us over and over again that it's not really as black and white as we'd like it to be, or as much as we would like to see it as black and white. There's many motivations that make people make decisions. There's many ideas and philosophies that back up their reasoning. And a well-reasoned mind, a well-reasoned argument, one way or the other, can be very influential in your determining which side to support. Today we're going to talk about good versus evil in today's society and how can we live brightly knowing all these different influences are coming at us from many different directions, demanding that we respond or challenging us to respond. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Captain Hook has always been displayed as the bad guy. And yet, when you stop and think about it, Peter Pan is taking children away from their families. He's creeping into their rooms at night and telling them fanciful stories, spewing a yarn of enticement and wonder for this faraway place where there'll be children forever and ever, where life will be easy and happy. But is it? Is Never Never Land real? Or is he just a guy looking for a kid to take with him away from home? And Captain Hook, who is continually trying to stop Peter Pan, of course, in Peter Pan's eyes, is being painted as the bad guy, the enemy, the one who wants to stop our fun. Wow. Stop your fun. Things have certainly changed over my lifetime, and... It's not, I'm not unique to this awareness. There are many people who have noticed and decried the slippery slope that society is on. One of the blessings that has come out of COVID is a little unscaling of the eyes. Jesus would heal people's vision and terms like there were scales that fell off or he packed them with mud. And when they washed the mud away, it was like almost like an astringent that kind of pulled off the layer of film so that they could then see. 
seeing things from a heavenly perspective, a biblical perspective, a spiritual perspective may jar you like that meme kind of struck me. That idea that maybe Captain Hook is really the good guy trying to prevent evil Peter Pan from stealing children away from their family home and their parents who love them dearly. You know, we don't ever hear about the parents. It's not like Wendy and the boys were in some horrible home. They had a nice home and a nice dog and many wonderful things. Not a place that you would consider to be someplace that you need to flee from. And I think our Christianity and our world perspective has gotten tainted by who tells the story. So who is telling the story? And who is spinning the details and coloring the details from what perspective? This is a question we need to ask ourselves when we consider who is the good guy? What is the good motivation? What is the heavenly perspective? And what is the earthly secular perspective? This Sunday at church, the minister said, we live in a post-Christian country. I disagree. I don't believe the United States of America can be the United States of America without it being a Christian country. And I say that because all of our foundation, all of our structure, our rules, our laws, even the way our government is established is all built upon the idea that this is a Judeo-Christian country. It's built on the Judeo-Christian ideals which is why it's so unique to the whole world. It's often replicated, but never duplicated. There are a lot of things that other countries try to make like the United States, but their structure, their foundation, what they're building upon is not built on the Judeo-Christian belief system. And the United States is very unique in that perspective. So I'm gonna look at those things today to let you see, A, we are a Christian nation, and B, it's vital that we maintain that Judeo-Christian foundation for the United States to continue to function as it is. Now, we all know the line, Thomas Jefferson coming out from the signing of the Constitution encounters a woman who says, Mr. Franklin, what type of government do we have? And his response is, a republic, if you can keep it. Do we want to keep it? Over and over and over again, we hear on the news, on the radio, on any broadcast, this democracy, the democracy of the United States, this great democracy. We are not a democracy. A democracy is basically mob rule. The United States is a representative republic. There are some things that we do within that representative republic that are democratic in nature. Our voting, for one, when we go to vote on election day, that is a democratic action. Winner takes all. And many states have established a percentage where they have a runoff election. They have a runoff election because they want the majority of the people voting to have a say in who gets elected. And that's very helpful when you have a race that's three or four people. Because if you have three people in the race, it's easy to get to a 40% majority. 
but 40% isn't 50%. And if you take one of those people out, the person who got the least percentage, now you only have two to choose from. You're going to get over 50%. Several states have these runoffs. Alabama, Alaska, Georgia, Mississippi, North Carolina, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Texas, and Vermont. Now, there's stipulations for them. Vermont only has a runoff if there's a tie. And South Dakota only uses a runoff for U.S. Senator, U.S. Representative, and the governor. So I'm going to assume that these other states use it for all races to ensure the majority of the people support the person that actually takes office because representation is very important. You're very busy. You have a life. You are building a business. You are working hard as an employee. You are raising a family. You are active in your church and active in your community. And you have lots of plates in the air or pots in the fire, however you want to describe it. Life is busy. And twice a year, you do your research, you look at who's on the ballot, and you say, this is the person I'm going to get behind. So in the primary, you look and you go, okay, of these three candidates within this party that I believe supports my ideals and my view of the world based on my faith, I think this one is going to be the best person to represent me. And you vote. And if that person wins or not, you get into the general election in November. You do the same thing. You take a few days, you do some research, you look at the people, you look at what they've done if they've been in office, what they haven't done if they've been in office, or what their experiences, their life experience to decide who you want to put in office. And then you vote. In these few states, if there are three people, and certainly if there's four people on the ballot, it makes it hard for one person to get to that 50% mark. In 2020, in Georgia, both Senate seats were up for election. Neither one of them reached that 50% mark, so it automatically triggered this runoff election. All eyes were on Georgia because of this runoff election because the Senate numbers were so tight. It made a huge impact for all of us in the United States because it had this second election. Two candidates that are at the top, all the other candidates fall off and you have to choose between A and B and winner take all. That's democratic. The most votes win. But we elect these people democratically to go represent us as representatives in this republic which is the reason we have the filibuster. The filibuster is designed to protect the voice of the minor party so that if the majority party, the party with more than 50% of the House or 50% of the Senate, wants to do something radically different than how we have done things before, radically against what the other party stands for, The filibuster protects the voice of the minor party because in reality, the minor party is not just 48 senators or there are 50 Republican senators, but the Democrats are considered the majority, even though there's only 48 Democrat senators. And that seems really odd because you would think there's only 48, 50, 50 should be in in leadership, but there's two senators who run as independents. But those independents, like most independents that I run into, lean left. 
So when it came to electing the president of the Senate, those two independent, well, and actually one of them's Bernie Sanders. He's a communist. He's farther left than the left can be. Although nowadays he's not as far left as some members of the Democrat Socialist Party. So he's an independent. There's another independent. Those two independents routinely, 100% of the time, vote with the Democrats. So when the election was held in the Senate for the Senate president, 50 votes went to the Democrat side, 50 votes went to the Republican side. The vice president is a Democrat, so she voted with the Democrats, breaking the tie, and Chuck Schumer is the leader of the Senate. Now, there are bills that come up through the Senate that have to be passed with a supermajority, 60%. So you can see how that protects the voice of the minor party. And it wouldn't matter which party it was. Ideally, it's to protect both parties because sometimes the Republicans are in charge, sometimes the Democrats are in charge, and sometimes it switches back and forth. And sometimes one party will have the House and the other party will have the Senate. And, you know, it, it gets all mixed up. It gets all different percentages, which is something unique to the United States. In some of the other countries that have tried to replicate the United States, representative republic, have rules that if you win the majority, then you get that percentage of people in the parliament. So if you had three parties, let's say, and one party got 50%, another party got 35%, and then the other party got 15%. That's exactly what the makeup would be in the parliament. And that's completely weird to us because we can have a House of Representatives and and the Senate both one party and the president be a different party. This is this representation. This is the push and pull that we have in the United States. It's very unique to the United States. And if you fundamentally change that, then you don't have the United States. You have something else. So when you talk about the United States, and for me, when newscasters say our democracy is at risk, I say, yes, you're right. We need to clean up our voting. And they kind of look at me. I go to a lot of political events. I walk in a lot of political circles. And anytime somebody brings up democracy, I always want to pull it back to what we do that's democratic. And the only thing that we do that's democratic is our voting. One citizen, one vote. That's it. Everything else is representative. We elect our representatives and then they go and write laws and push and pull with and against people to get the best bills and laws passed to represent all the people that they stand for. So the Ohio representatives, in theory, go to D.C., to fight for what Ohioans want, whether they're Democrat or Republican. And yes, the ideas and the philosophies and the beliefs of the representative really matter, which is why you have to take your time and do your research and find out who are these people and what do they say? And not just what do they say, but what do they do? What are their previous votes? Right now in Ohio, we have two men running for Senate. There's an open Senate seat coming up in November. And our primaries are all done. So we have one person running on the Republican side and one person running on the Democrat side. Now, the Democrat running has been a U.S. representative. He's been in the House for many, many years. Before that, he was in the state House. 
There's a lot of political history there. He has made his positions known based on his vote. He voted 100% of the time with Barack Obama. He has voted 100% of the time with Joe Biden. He has voted mostly against Trump because there's always a few bills in there that are just, they're just good bills and you got to pass them. So even though Trump's the president, we're just going to pass this bill because it's a good bill. And they've worked hard to tweak it to make it palatable. So there's a lot of history there, regardless of the rhetoric in his advertisements or his flyers or his campaign stump speeches, because he's playing real middle of the road. And he's taking credit for those few little things he voted with Trump on, as if those were big, I stepped out of the party line and I did what I needed to do for Ohioans. And you can look at this history and you can look at that and you go, yeah, I don't think so. Or... He's not a moderate. Let's put it that way. There's evidence to prove he's not a moderate because of how he has voted and what he has done and what he has said in his role as a representative. Now, the person who's running for Senate on the Republican side is a complete newcomer. He hasn't voted on anything ever. He's never been a city councilman. He's not been a state rep. He's not been a state senator. He's not been a mayor of some small city. Nothing. He is completely new to this whole political world. Now, he's a lawyer and he's kind of famous. He wrote a book about his upbringing, which really resonates with a lot of people. But you have to look at it and go, okay, what do I know about this person? I know what his campaign says, but, you know, that's marketing, right? He's selling himself just like the other guy. The other guy is trying to make himself look like he's not quite who he is or trying to soften those hard edges. And this other guy is a complete stranger to us. We know a little bit about his upbringing because he wrote a book and they did a movie about the book, but it really only got him to college. What has he been doing since college? What has he supported? Where has he been? What has he spent his life building as a professional? Is he building things that you support, that you are encouraged by, that align with your ideals or not? Is he a member of a faith family? Does he go to a church? Does he have a belief system that he leans on? These are questions that we need to ask. And frankly, right now, it's a little late. Now you're comparing the two and you go, okay, which do we want? We want this guy or we want this other guy. And what it's going to lean to for a lot of people is, I know this other guy. I know the Democrat candidate because I know his votes. I know his track record. I know how he speaks out of one side of his mouth and actually means something else. And you have to question, okay, is that somebody we can trust with a Senate seat? Because the Senate seat lasts for six years. Yeah, you might make a mistake with a person to go to the House to represent you in the House of Representatives. That's a two-year gig. If you really don't like them, you can vote them out next time. Six years is a long time to put somebody up in D.C. to make very big decisions. The Senate approves all the judicial nominees, all the cabinet leadership nominees. Part of their job is to help vet the people that the president promotes as someone to lead a major organization in the government. Those appointments are very, very important. And it's very important that we have somebody who can represent you and what you believe. 
and how you see the world and what you feel about the United States of America. Is the United States of America fundamentally flawed? Was Barack Obama right when he said he wanted to fundamentally change the United States of America? Does it need to be fundamentally changed? But what does fundamentally changed mean? The foundation? The foundation is the Judeo-Christian belief system. The Judeo-Christian view of how the world works. It doesn't demand that every person be a religious person. It doesn't demand, a matter of fact, it, it prevents and stands against the government becoming a theocracy, no matter what they want to tell you. Because the First Amendment says the government shall make no law prevent you from exercising your religion, but it can't come up and say, okay, we're a Catholic nation and we're going to be Catholic from now on. No, the president just can't go into the House and the Senate and say, okay, pass a bill, we're all going to be Mormons. No, that's against the Constitution. But what is equally against the Constitution is the government cannot tell you, oh, you can't do that. You can't open your church because we're afraid of COVID. And I know that steps on a lot of people's toes, but I think more churches should have pushed back when they said, no, you can't even open. Now, granted, I'm glad that most churches established a, well, shoot, in one day, they all became televangelists, right? They figured out a way to do Zoom meetings and online meetings and live stream their events and that's good. I don't believe that the federal government had the right to tell churches that they could not function at all. And I'm supported by that because I know a few churches that have sued the federal government and their state government and won the case that they cannot control the church's right to gather, to assemble, the right for assembly and worship their God. They didn't force anybody. And like I said, I'm glad they did virtual. I went to virtual. Had my church stayed open, I probably would have gone to church. If I'd have gone to church, I could have gotten COVID. I may have gotten COVID. I got COVID in January, you know, wearing the mask to the grocery store and not going to the grocery store very often. I got it. I had it. I'm over it. So who is the bad guy? Is it one of these two people running for Senate? Well, maybe. I don't know. I don't know who's going to be on your ballot in November. Now, I know we don't war against flesh People are not our enemy, but a person who is going to represent me, I want to represent America, the United States of America, as a country built and founded upon the Judeo-Christian belief system. It's vitally important. Let's take a break right here real quick and talk about that this is a value for value podcast. I work really hard to pull this together and share this information with you so that you can trim your wick and fill your oil and you can be individually a lamp in the darkness. And I ask that you would take the value that you get from this, turn it into a number, whatever that number is. It could be $5. That could be a lot of money for you. I know it's a lot of money for me. And go to elainecross.com and make a donation and partner with me as a producer to keep this going. This takes a lot of time and I'm very passionate about it. And I think you could hear the passion in my voice to share this information with you, but I can't do it alone. So join with me, partner with me as a producer of this show and together 
we can be a shining city on a hill. So let's continue. So one of the terms we hear in a negative tone as a derogatory term almost is to be a populist. And populist basically just means appealing to the interests or prejudices of ordinary people. Now, in U.S. history, there was a People's Party that was populistic. And this People's Party was made up of the lower wage earners and predominantly farmers in the post-Civil War era. Now, there were some things that they wanted that worked out well and some things they wanted that didn't necessarily work out well. But one of their big arguments was that there was a lot of manipulation in the banking industry and the money industry that was making it very hard for them to make a living. Now, post-Civil War, the amount of farmers doubled in a very short period of time and the amount of farmland doubled in a very short period of time, which those kind of go together, right? More land, more farmers. The problem was they couldn't sell their crops because there was so much supply. There was not enough demand. That's basic capitalism. And they were using the idea that the gold standard was the problem or the fact that there wasn't a lot of paper money at the time and they wanted to use paper, more paper money. And the politicians, mostly in the East, because all this new land was in the West and in the South, were resistant to that. And it was the two major political parties at the time. But as they kind of organized and started to send people to Congress, some of the things that they talked about is, and I get this from encyclopedia.com, I'll put a link in the show notes, did a convention of a couple different small organizations to form the People's Party. And in their platform, their preamble to their platform, they say, quote, we have witnessed for more than a quarter of a century the struggles of the two great political parties for power and plunder, while grievous wrongs have been inflicted upon the suffering people. We charge controlling interests dominating both these parties have permitted the existing dreadful conditions to develop without serious effort to prevent or restrain them. Neither do they now promise us any substantial reform. They further wrote, they propose to drown the outcries of a plundered people with the uproar of a sham battle over the tariff so that capitalists, corporations, national banks, rings, trusts, watered stock, the demonization of silver, and the oppression of the usuries may be lost sight of. And a usurer is somebody who owes debt. So they, you guys are just playing politics and we're suffering here. Now, Part of that was there was too much supply and not enough demand, and there was not a good, um, you know, they talk about tariffs. I didn't dig into all the details of this, but this large group of people were suffering. Now, some of the things they asked for was a bit much. They wanted free coinage of silver. So they wanted to expand the amount of money in the system because then they could pay for their products. So the free coinage of silver the abolition of national banks. Get rid of all the national banks. They wanted to create a sub-treasury system and they wanted a graduated income tax, an expanded supply of paper money, and the government ownership of transportation and communication, especially the railroads. The direct election of U.S. senators and term limits for the president and vice president and repatriation of land currently owned by foreigners. 
They wanted some civil service reform. They wanted an eight-hour workday, and they wanted pensions for ex-Union soldiers, and they wanted to revise some of the laws were contracts and a reforming of the immigration system, which, quote, opens our ports to the pauper and criminal classes of the world and crowds out our wage earners, unquote. So you can hear some of those things are being echoed today. Are those bad things? As we see thousands and thousands of acres being bought up by foreign countries, homes being bought by foreign investors just because they want to gather the rent from Americans and take it back to their foreign countries. Is that a bad thing? The repatriation of foreign-owned lands. I think that's a good idea. Maybe that makes me a populist. Now, I don't support the abolition of the national banks. We have national banks, and those national banks are FDIC-insured, which protects the depositor. Most of us little guys who have just a little bit of money in the bank, and if the bank goes belly up, we want that to be protected. The government owns most of the roads. So in some ways, they do have ownership of transportation. You know, there was a time when all the utility companies were owned or at least controlled by the government. Now there's still a lot of oversight in the energy sector But the energy sector is one of those things where do we really want them to make a profit from something that we need all the time, like electricity? Is it good for us to have a for-profit energy sector? Yes, they take a lot of risk. They do a lot of things. (laughs) No, the federal government is not going to run it any better than the private sector. If if anything, they're going to run it a lot worse. But there's a balance there, right? And when it all becomes about profit, when we're trying to get a profit for the energy creation, there's a problem. We should be able to generate energy and generating electricity is a huge issue. And that's going to be a podcast all its own. But you can see where there are some of these things where they talk about a populist, people who think about the ordinary people. Now, some of their ideas are very similar to some of the ideas they're trying to promote now. So if I wanted to compare one of the two major political parties to the populist movement of the 1860s and 1870s, I would say it's the Socialist Democrats, where they want the government to take control of private industry, and they want the government to store their grain until the prices go up so that they can make more money. And they want subsidies and help. But there are some things here that I really like that could be related to the Republican Party. Reading these documents about the populist movement, the organization of farmers and low wage earners in the West, and their problem with the railroad and having a standard money beckons that we look at American history with the idea of when the railroads went through the West, which was important to the development of the whole country, they were tyrannical in their treatment of the people who lived in the West or people who were trying to settle the West. And they used their power and their influence and their money to oppress the people. They created company stores which used their own form of currency and they charged exorbitant amounts of money, but they were the ones who were also controlling 
all of the products moving into the West because they were bringing in what they needed to build the railroad and they needed to feed their their workers. So these farmers and these other laborers in the area were being oppressed by these outrageous prices and this unique currency that you could only use at the company store. So it wasn't so much about the government taking over the railroad as the government suppressing this abuse of the people by the railroad uh, executives. And just watch a few Westerns and you'll see the stories. They're roughly based on truth. The railroads owned towns. They put in place sheriffs or people that would do their bidding regardless of what the people in the town wanted. Well, that sounds a lot like pushing back against chaos. Pushing back against chaos and haters and totalitarian states. Because in their small world, in rural Montana or Idaho, that was their government. The railroad was their government and they didn't like it. And I could say, I don't like it. When I think of the pharmaceutical companies or some other companies right now that are using their power, their influence, and their money to oppress the everyday person, that's not acceptable. How we fix it, well, that's complicated. Closing the border and controlling the border from, quote, the pauper and criminal classes of the world and crowds that crowd out our wage earners, unquote. That might be important. I love the idea of repatriating the land currently owned by foreigners. That's great. I like the fact that we did end up with a term limit for the president and vice president. And those two got rolled into one election. They used to be separate elections. So now we elect a president and vice president as a team, and they can only serve two terms. What I don't like that came out of this movement was the direct election of U.S. senators. And this is something that we really need to consider because maybe it's better, maybe it's not. I don't know. But I really feel like this this movement, this populist movement, really gained a lot of traction in the Democrat Party. Moving into the 20th century, the 1900s, we saw a lot of these socialistic ideals starting to take root. So when the newscasters start talking about a populist person in a negative vein, you can go, wait, which part of it is wrong? (laughs) Because some things are not so great and some things are better. Some things are good for the country as a country, an individual or sovereign nation. And there's some things that are very much socialistic, communistic in nature. Inflation happens when you have too much money in circulation. And the best way to stop inflation is stop printing money. But we are continuing to flood the United States of America and the world with the U.S. dollar. And that's not going to bode well for us here who represent the dollar. It makes the dollars worth less, which is what the banks had against expanding the supply of paper money and moving into silver coins instead of just gold coins. There's issues to celebrate and issues to push back against on both sides of the populist label. So what populism, when they talk about populism, it sounds like maybe it's just name calling. 
And you have to listen to what they're talking about behind the populist label. Another word that they throw around in media today is nationalist. And it's funny, when I looked up nationalist on my computer, on my tablet, (laughs) one of the options came up was nationalist China. And the definition is the unofficial name of the Republic of China. Now, when I just look up the definition of nationalist, a nationalist is a person devoted to nationalism. Okay, that doesn't sound scary. Or a member of a political group advocating or fighting for national independence and a strong national government. Huh, what's wrong with that? Advocating or fighting for national independence or a strong national government. So when they call you a nationalist, and often they'll they'll put those two terms together, national populist. But if you are a nationalist, does that make you a supporter of Ronald Reagan? Peace through strength? It certainly is counter to a globalist who believes in a global economy and a global world and a global government. And I'm not sure how they think the globalists are going to control the people. I don't know how else to put it. (laughs) Uh, There is a very large segment of very powerful and wealthy people who have been working extremely hard for a very long time to develop a global ruling class. Now, that doesn't appeal to me. I don't even like the UN. Frankly, I think we should kick the UN out of the United States, except for the argument that, you know, keep your enemies close so that you can kind of watch and see what they're doing. But the UN is, it's one way to maybe mitigate some international issues between countries. But for the most part, it tries to create these globalistic laws and globalistic rules. The global rights of children include the idea that children can be sexually active as young as four, and we should allow it. To which our Christian brothers and sisters with me should say, not on my watch. That's called abuse. There's a place for sexual activity within the marriage. That's it. That's what my God says is best. And looking at the negative outcomes that happen outside of that standard support and reinforce that belief system. So what's wrong with being a nationalist? What's wrong with supporting your country? What's wrong with chanting, USA, 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 right? Why do we have the Olympics? Why is it such a big deal that all these countries come to the Olympics? Or if we should block somebody from coming to the Olympics because of the way they're oppressing and treating their citizens, or the fact that they're trying to take the land and property of a neighboring country. So we either boycott the Olympics or we block another country from participating in the Olympics. Nations 
The nation state is God's idea. God is a nationalist. God created nations. From you, many nations will come. He didn't say from you, lots of people. When he and Abraham had the conversation about the Abrahamic covenant, it was many nations would come from Abraham. And I was reminded this week that Abraham had eight sons. He had Ishmael, Isaac, and then after Sarah died, he got remarried and she gave him six more sons. And then we have an unknown number of children he had with concubines whom he sent to the east. But Abraham's oldest, Ishmael, most of the Arabs in the Middle East, in the the Central East. And then, of course, you have Isaac, which is the Jews, the Israeli state, and, and those tribes and those divisions within Israel. And Abraham's other six sons, who all created more nations, not cities, not tribes, not bunches of people, nations. Nations organized with a set of laws, with a clear boundary, with a clear judicial system, monetary system. A group of people ordered and organized under a governmental structure. Now, there's lots of different governmental structures in the world. Prior to the United States, most of them were monarchs where there was a king or queen some kind of military ruling family. And then there were slowly more refined government systems that came out of that. And ultimately, the United States of America, with its representative republic, imperfect. We make mistakes. We do things well. We do things not so well sometimes. There are some things that we used to do that maybe we should do again. But there are certainly things that we used to do that we don't ever want to do again. When we ratified the Constitution of the United States, there were many people in many states that did not want slavery. And they knew that at some point they were going to have to write a constitutional amendment to stop slavery. They didn't expect it was going to take 100 years. And when the Civil War ended and the Emancipation Proclamation really became the rallying cry of what the United States was going to be, they didn't expect it to be another hundred years before true authentic change could take place. And in, from 1965, 1965 to 2008, we were making great, great progress. But even from that time, The push from the left has always been about separating identity type politics. And we were making good strides. There's issues. There's still issues. But to fall back into the idea that we're as bad or worse now than we ever were is a lie. It's a total lie. There are opportunities for everyone. And Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. And we have the poor. And yes, it might be a higher percentage that are blacks. There's this broad spectrum of people who are extremely poor and people who are extremely wealthy. In 1870, there was a lot of hope for this nation to put race behind it. And you want to talk about a made-up term. Race is a completely made-up term. 
it was a fabrication to separate and divide between the white and the black population of the United States. There had already been blacks elected to Congress. There had been blacks and white who had gotten married. Blacks were voting. Blacks were electing blacks. There was a black, like a stock exchange, a black business corridor, finance corridor. It was very profitable and very advanced. And the left came in and shut it down and then turned around and tried to point to the Republicans and say, it's their fault. They did it. If you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. When God told Abraham that nations were going to come from him and he was going to bless Isaac and his children, it took a few generations before Israel was even started with the 12 brothers. And from that came this nation with the 12 tribes. Well, simultaneously, these other sons of Abraham were building their nations. They were marrying, they were having children, and those children were having children, and they were organizing and ordering themselves into nation states, into nations. And God's plan to have a nation, an individual nation, included the idea that these nations would get in tufts with each other. God sent the nation of Israel into the promised land, the land that he had set aside for them and told them to war against these nations. International war is part of this sinful nature life that we are living in. This world is broken. It is fallen. It is full of sin. It is full of selfishness. It is full of self-righteousness. It is full of, I'm better than you, and my way is better than your way, which can escalate to the point of combat and war. When Jesus came, he didn't say, all nations are now gone, we're just going to have, you know, we're all going to sit together and sing Kumbaya. Jesus said he came to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Well, the kingdom of heaven is spiritual. It's not physical. But to bring the the kingdom of heaven, the spiritual ideal of God to earth can only be in individual people and how we as individual believers interact with those around us. We still have to function in the societies, the nations of the world. We are dual citizens. We are a citizen of heaven while a citizen of the United States or France or England or India or China or wherever. We are dual citizens. But as citizens of heaven, being a citizen of the United States or being a citizen of India or being a citizen of Canada, we are also under the authority of that government, of that nation state. And the blessing and the beauty of being a U.S. citizen, of being a citizen of the United States of America is, with its foundation being the Judeo-Christian ideal, the Judeo-Christian worldview, sets us in a place where we come from a place of freedom. We come from a place as powerful individuals with the authority to interact with each other as powerful individuals. 
I can use my power to oppress you, but I don't have to oppress you and I don't want to oppress you because you have your own power and your own strength. And together we can change the world, which the United States has done. The United States has positively impacted the whole world because of its Judeo-Christian foundation. In the United States of America, we live under God's natural law. And natural law is all over our constitution and our Declaration of Independence and our founding documents and even the federal papers. In the United States, our rights first come from God. And those inalienable rights that come from God, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, as well as the right to own property, the right to exercise your religion, the right to own and bear arms. These are all positive rights. These are rights given to us that cannot be taken away by the government. Other countries that have tried to replicate the United States, tried to make a similar structure within their governance, this is the primary fail because they're not built on that foundation of Judeo-Christian beliefs. So they have negative rights. The government gives you the right to this. The government gives you the right to that. And the government can take those rights away. In the United States of America, we recognize that these rights come from God, nature's God, who ordained governments, who allows governments, who authorizes governments. But God doesn't run the government, but the government, it's subject to God. The government answers to God. All governments do. Scripture says that he builds nations up and tears them down. He knows the time for different nations. As citizens of the United States of America that recognizes that role of creator God within the structure of our government has a huge responsibility to whom much is given, much is required. If you lived in Russia and you lived in China and you lived in North Korea, you have to vote. It's compulsory. Everyone is registered. Everyone votes. And guess what? There's only one person on the ballot to vote for. So it's a unanimous decision every time. That is not the United States of America. In the United States of America, we have freedom. And as I say, freedom is messy. Yes, we, and I have to throw it in because I say it every week. We are called to push against the chaos, but we push against the chaos in freedom. And the way you push against your chaos and the way I push against my chaos is a little bit different. But together, when we push together as a nation against the chaos of the world, outside of the confines of our nation, the United States of America, we then as a nation can become this city on a hill, this light that radiates the world over, which it has done for 200 years. And yet we're at this precipice. We're at this point where the enticement of the world, the enticement to, uh, and I hate to say it, to laziness, this enticement to get free stuff, whatever, however you want to put it, is a lie from the pit that your enemy has set for you to fall into. And we as a nation, we as believers within this nation, 
need to come together as a block and push back against that chaos. Jesus told us to care for the widows and the orphans and that the poor would always be with us and we should care for the poor. Jesus did not tell Rome to take care of the poor and the widow and the homeless. He told us. And I'm not saying that there aren't good places for that within our government. But when we say, okay, yeah, the government can do it and we just brush our hands off and walk away, that's a fail. In this country, where we have the freedom to register to vote and to vote, that is our fundamental responsibility to push back against the chaos of the world, of the lies of our enemy, of hell itself, to protect this nation that was built on biblical truth, and we don't do it. That's a fail. Looking at the numbers, about 65 to 70% of the people who can register to vote are registered to vote. 75% of the population say they're Christians. I know there are people who are not Christians who vote. So we're failing. It's our responsibility. It's our duty as ambassadors for Christ and co-heirs with him and citizens of this United States of America to participate in the choosing of our leaders. Israel didn't choose Pharaoh. Pharaoh dominated Israel. Israel didn't choose Rome. Rome dominated Israel. God gave Israel prophets, priests, and judges to organize their government. It was a theocracy. God was the king. And God used prophets, priests, and judges to organize his nation. And just like in the Garden of Eden, they said, no, we don't want you as our king. We want a human king. We want a king like those guys have a king. And in their freedom, God said, okay, give him a king. And Samuel's like, oh, I don't want to give him a king. A king's going to take their kids and take their grain and take their young men and women and put them in his service. God said, I know, I know. Give him a king. So Samuel did. Has the United States reached that point where the Christians are so disengaged from our responsibility to register and vote that we will allow our enemy to choose our king, to choose our leader. So right now you have a voice. Right now you have an option. Right now you can be engaged. And I'm not asking you to be engaged every day. Listen to the podcast. Take value from it. Turn that value into a number. Donate it back so I can keep doing what I'm doing. So you don't have to take your time to do what I'm doing. You can take your time doing what you're doing, building cars or building houses or building bridges or building a family, whatever it is, twice a year, do a little research, make a decision and vote. 70% of the people are registered to vote. On average, in a presidential year, 60% of those who are registered actually vote. So 40% of the people who are registered to vote don't even show up. And that's for a presidential. In an off year, a midterm, like this year, that number drops to 40%. 40% of the 70% show up and vote for our senators 
and our representatives, and you're bitching about the government that you have, and you're complaining about the decisions they're making in Washington, and you're unhappy with the idea that we have no border in the United States of America and illegals are are flooding in every day without any kind of scrutiny or plan or purpose. And meanwhile, our government is printing money like it's, I don't know, Valentine's Day cards for some elementary school. And they're shipping billions of dollars overseas to another country to protect their border. If you're not voting, you're failing. How can the United States continue to be a bright city on a hill if one by one those candles dim more and more and more every year? Well, I go to church. I tithe. Well, that's great. Good for you. Keep doing it. But what are you doing for the foreigner, for the lowly, for the oppressed, for the outcasts. If you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not a believer, if you're not a citizen of heaven, if you don't have dual citizenship, you're a foreigner. Maybe you have some foreigners in your family that don't yet know Christ. You certainly have foreigners that live on your block that don't yet know Christ. You have foreigners in your workspace. And I'm not saying they're not U.S. citizens. I'm saying they're definitely U.S. citizens. They just don't know who Jesus is. They're not members, citizens of heaven. But you're going to church and you're tithing. And I'm not saying those are bad things. Those are really good things. Maybe you're reading your Bible. Maybe you're doing a Bible study. Maybe you're, you're in it. Maybe you're a pastor or pastor's wife but you haven't voted in four years, six years. What are you doing? Are you telling me that we have to vote, that that's part of my Christian duty, that God is going to look down on me and say, why didn't you vote? Yeah, I'm going to say that. To whom much is given, much is required. And that goes for ministers who teach heresy or truth as well as people who are given freedom to help direct the government of their nation and don't engage. Now, there's movies out there that have these big boats that have multiple oars, and it takes two people to row one oar. And the people are in the base of the boat, and they're in chains. They're usually slaves, and there's a a musher calling to keep them in time. Pull pull, pull, right? They've got this rhythm where they have to paddle together in rhythm to propel the boat to the next port. Through the storms, through the lack of wind, they pull together. Are you pulling with us? Are you putting in the work? Are you participating in the process? Because if only one side is pulling, Your boat's not going anywhere. It's going in circles. And if each oar takes two people and there's only one person for each oar, you might not be moving or you're moving so slow. You're just barely getting ahead of all the chaos, all the waves and the wind and the pushing and pulling of the sea, the chaos around you. You're barely staying afloat. 
If you are not registered, you need to register. If someone calls you a populist, say, yeah, I'm for the average person. If someone calls you a nationalist, you say, thank you, because I'm like my father in heaven. But if somebody calls you out for not voting, you better look in the mirror and say, what are you doing? To whom much is given, much is required. It's not a lot. It's not a lot. And there are trusted people and organizations to get information from. And we've talked a little bit about different issues, and we're going to continue to talk about some of the issues. Matter of fact, I'm going to go into a deep dive about some issues that Christians use to support their political ideology, either right or left. And we're going to dismantle some of that and kind of lay it all bare to look at what scripture says and our responsibility as dual citizens of heaven and earth, of the kingdom of God and the United States of America. Because in the United States of America, you have a right to decide if you're going to register to vote. That's a freedom. You have to exercise that freedom and go register to vote. And then the other freedom is showing up and voting. And frankly, right now, we have so much going on with our voting. You need to be involved. You need to work the polls. You need to be a poll watcher. I would much rather work the polls and be a poll watcher than have a full-on civil war go on. We are in a cultural war. We are in a war with our enemy who wishes to steal, kill, and destroy the United States of America. Because the United States of America is a bulwark against the plans of the devil. And if we don't stand and push against the chaos through as such a little thing as voting and helping the vote take place, you're not with me. You're against me. You're not rowing in time with us. You're not with us because this is an all hands on deck. This is an easy all hands on deck. I could ask you to do a bunch of other things that would be much more uncomfortable like go to that foreigner who lives on your street and ask him if they want to come to church with you. You should do that too. This is easier. Register to vote, do your homework, and vote responsibly. That's how you let your light shine. That's how you keep the lights on here in the United States of America. That's how the United States of America continues to be a bright, shining city on a hill that people from all over this world are fighting each other to get to. Talk to an immigrant. Ask them about their story. It's remarkable what some of these people go through to just come here, even those who never become citizens but they become permanent green card holders and they can work and live and raise their family here. And most of them say they would do it again. But you talk to those people from places that are not so great and they're gonna tell you they're scared because of the trajectory that our ship is going because there aren't enough people rowing the other way. Row, row, row your boat. Join with us and let's keep the light on and burn bright individually as a lamp, together as a shining city on a hill. This takes a lot of time and I'm very passionate about it. And I think you can tell, you can hear the passion in my voice to share this information with you, but I can't do it alone. Join with me, partner with me as a producer of this show and together we can be a shining city on a hill. Go to ElaineCross.com 
and make a donation. Thanks for joining me. Till next time. It's the for-profit hospitals. You know, hospitals are making money off of people being sick. 50 years ago, even, the majority of hospitals were not for profit. And even today, a lot of hospitals claim to be not for profit. And yet they make billions of dollars off of people being sick. (laughs) Yeah, I have a problem with that. You're not sick enough. Well, maybe there's a problem with our whole medical industry if it's all based on pharmaceutical companies and medical companies making a profit. And I'm not saying doctors shouldn't be well paid. They should. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have great research and development and look to fix things that ail us. But when we put so much effort in medical inventions and drugs and surgery while ignoring the wealth of natural ways to heal people because there's no money to be made in the homeopathic method doesn't mean the homeopathic method isn't superior. Trying to get a profit for sick people or from sick people and when we're trying to get a profit from the energy creation, there's a problem.